Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On the show this week, we've got an episode from the archives. About a year ago, the FT's senior investment commentator, John Author, sat down with MIT professor Andrew Lowe to talk about his adaptive markets hypothesis. It's an idea he spent many years working through, and it's this theory that markets develop and adapt over time, that they can't be modeled using concepts from physics, but instead should be viewed biologically as a complex ecosystem. Here's their conversation. Andrew Lowe, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I have in my hands a an exclusive proof copy of Adaptive Markets Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. It's obviously a labour of love. You've been working on it for more than a decade. Let's start by asking you, why do you think this book was necessary? What prompted you to try to come up with an alternative to the efficient markets hypothesis? Well, the motivation for the book was really my attempt to try to reconcile two competing theories, the efficient markets hypothesis and all of the behavioral anomalies that psychologists and behavioral economists have documented over the last several decades that argue that that humans really aren't as rational and predictable as we thought. And uh, so the adaptive markets hypothesis is my approach to trying to reconcile those two competing schools of thought. Where do we part company from efficient markets as we've come to know it? Is it to do with the theory of the human brain? Is it as profound as that? Or are we talking more about looking at the kind of uh, flaws in decision-making that uh, the behavioral finances led by Kahneman and Tversky have discovered over the last few decades? Well, I think it is as profound as the origins of the human brain and how it works and how it differs from other species. So, The idea behind the adaptive markets hypothesis is that the efficient markets hypothesis is not wrong. It's just incomplete. It's only part of the picture. And while the behavioral economists and psychologists have documented departures from rationality, what we really need is a theory that encompasses those kinds of behaviors. And so by understanding how humans actually behave through their brains Mm. and through evolution over time, we can actually begin to develop this broader theory. And that's what the adaptive markets hypothesis is. Okay, so you're borrowing a lot from Darwinian or lots of insight from Darwinian theories of evolution and uh, evolutionary biology. Exactly. Now, in the case of the efficient markets hypothesis, the the version of rationality there is, is such that all the information about a security is already at all times reflected in a share price, maybe with some instantaneous period for adaptability. How does that change once you bring in your different notion of uh, rationality? Well, to begin with, Pharma's genius in formulating the efficient markets hypothesis, and, and Samuel's talking about Gene Pharma of, uh, of the University of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. 
Gene Fahm is genius in formulating the efficient markets hypothesis, along with Paul Samuelson, mm. is that prices fully reflect all available information. Now, that statement contains two parts. The first is that prices fully reflect the available information. But the second is that the fully reflect part, that's the part that we have to keep in mind when we think about how humans actually make decisions and incorporate those kinds of pieces of information into prices. It's human behavior uh, that really causes us these kinds of issues that psychologists have been documenting. Once we understand how human behavior works, we see that sometimes prices don't reflect all available information. Or, or if they do, they reflect more than just information. They also reflect emotion. And that makes the theories much more complex. Okay, let's try looking at some worked examples from our mutually shared history. You've written a lot about what is now a, almost a forgotten incident, the 97 and 98, the Asian crisis, and then LTCM, and then very scarily, the quant quake of 2007, when a bunch of very interesting quantitative hedge funds suddenly lost inordinate amounts of money in what appeared to be a clear blue sky. And then obviously, we have the, the crisis of 2008. How did each of those incidents help you develop this theory? And is there any way this theory might have helped us at least mitigate what happened in those, uh, those very scary events? Well, in fact, it was exactly those events that really formulated my thinking about the adaptive markets hypothesis and got me to start down this path, try to understand how markets really work. So the basic idea behind crisis is mm. that investors are reacting, and they're not reacting rationally necessarily, they're reacting emotionally. Uh, in fact, if you look at the hedge fund industry, I call that the Galapagos Islands of the financial industry because you can see evolution happening before your very eyes. You can see species coming and going and reacting almost in a biological perspective, not a physical or mathematical one. So when you have these kind of crises, typically what happens is that investors react very strongly by pulling assets from risky securities and putting them into safe assets. Uh, flight to quality, or right. as I call it, freaking out. <laughs> right. When investors freak out, they reduce the expected return on risky assets and increase the expected return on safe assets because they're selling the risky assets, causing their prices to go down, and buying the safe assets, causing the prices to go up. When you look at the data during those periods, what you see is that investors are not getting rewarded for taking risk. They're getting punished for taking risk. So the whole idea of a risk-reward trade-off, which is central to modern finance, is turned on its head during these periods of crises. And I think that's the part that really requires a different narrative, a different explanation. And I believe that if we had the adaptive markets hypothesis at our disposal, we could have treated those periods very differently from a policy perspective. Now, one of the appeals of the efficient markets hypothesis, as it's taught in business school and so on, is that it does allow you to come up with very precise answers in numerical terms to very precise questions. You can be asked, how would you diversify away all the risk of such and such a bond? And there will actually be an answer to that question. Is moving to the adaptive markets hypothesis, accepting that you cannot have quite the degree of precision 
that the EMH, the efficient markets hypothesis, offers us, or is it giving us an equivalently powerful but more complicated model? Well, I would argue that it is a more complicated model, but eventually we actually can have the same level of precision as we do now in efficient markets. The only issue is that this is early days for the adaptive markets hypothesis. And so we don't yet have the corpus of research that we have for efficient markets, which has been around for for many decades. In particular, what the adaptive markets hypothesis tells us to do is to actually collect different kinds of data from what we're doing now and analyze them differently. In particular, we have to think about financial markets more as an ecosystem Mm. rather than a mechanistic kind of a system. And what that means is that we have to start collecting information about the ecosystem the same way that an ecologist or evolutionary biologist would. We have to ask what the key species are in the ecosystem, what their biomasses are, how they compete, how they survive and adapt. Uh, All of the various different aspects of the flora and fauna of financial markets have to be measured, quantified, and analyzed. We don't do that right now. We have a very different view of financial markets that's really driven by this physicist's perspective. But in fact, we don't have a physical model. We really have a biological one. Okay. Not that you have anything against all your friends in the physics department at MIT, but that may not be the the relevant science. Exactly. Physics is a much more simple approach to modeling the world than biology because the underlying phenomenon uh, are that much simpler. You know, Richard Feynman, the Mm. great physicist, said it best one year at a Caltech graduation in the midst of a stock market crash. Feynman said to his students, imagine how much more complicated physics would be if electrons had feelings. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that really captures the difference between physics and biology. Okay, and it's also why economists' models tend not to work quite as well as physicists' models do, e- I suppose. Exactly. Now, let's try to do some of this ecological research in real time, or at least get an example of it. Perhaps the biggest phenomenon of the moment in the financial ecosystem is the rise of beta, of big passive fund management and the decline of the traditional model of active management, long-only mutual funds with about 100 stocks in them. How would you go about modelling that with the adaptive model? How, how would you predict this uh, obviously very dramatic shift over the last 10 years towards passive? Well, that's a great example. Last year, I published an article titled, What is an Index?, And that article was exactly geared towards trying to understand the shift in passive investing as we have more and more assets in that space. So we have to begin first with the recognition that John Bogle has really transformed the financial industry. The founder of Vanguard. The founder of Vanguard has really transformed Mm. the industry. Part of the reason he did so was not because of efficient markets, but because of something that Mr. Bogle calls the CMH. CMH stands for the cost matters hypothesis. And I find this an incredibly compelling idea. The fact is that using passive investment vehicles like Vanguard's mutual funds, investors can save a significant amount of money in terms of the fees that are usually charged. And that matters over time. So what's happened over the last several decades since Vanguard started providing their products and services is that a large number of investors have flocked to these index funds. And that's a good thing in general, but what it does do is to create systematic risk. In other words, if it turns out that a fund loses money, that means that you and I both experience losses if we're invested in the same fund. 
The fact that so many people now are indexing means that we are now all tied together to the same outcomes. And when we start getting those outcomes in a synchronous fashion, we will start hurting in that very same way. And hurting behavior can actually affect markets in a very dramatic fashion. Well, I completely agree with you on, on that one. I can remember people talking to me in '07 ahead of the ahead of the crisis, saying that what you've got to worry about is that this is like the Serengeti, mm-hmm. and everybody knows that if you if you want to be the wildebeest who doesn't get chomped by the the cheetah or the lion, you need to be in the middle of the herd, and that's actually what's most dangerous. You also look very intriguingly at, at network theory, at connectedness, which is another. You know, another idea that a lot of us only discovered for the first time once we discovered it mattered in (laughs) 07 and 08. Could you explain how connectedness matters and how that affects the uh, adaptive markets hypothesis? That's a very important concept. And the concept really emerges as a contrast to what is currently being done now in areas like risk management for financial investments. Mm -hmm. So typically, when we think about risk management and investor behavior, we use a very statistical approach that the returns of a particular investment are going to be dictated by the statistical distribution. But in fact, what happens in financial markets is that investors are going to be reacting to each other's behavior. And so the more tightly connected a market is, the more investors are tied to each other's fates, the more likely it is that small perturbations in market values can spread like a cascade or a virus to the entire market. So measuring connectedness, measuring how one institution or individual is tied to the fate of another institution or individual can give us insights into how easily these kinds of shocks can propagate and how they can be easily magnified very, very quickly if we have the wrong event happening at the wrong time. And ultimately, the financial crisis is the uh, you know, perfect illustration of that. Okay, so to try to make sure people can visualize this or understand this, your, your MIT colleague Bob Merton has done a lot of work on this concept uh, as well. Say you take one company like a big investment bank and then look at how many different interrelationships or relationships it has with other companies, other funds, other entities, and the more little lines you have, the, the more opaque the chart looks, the more connected it is and the more worried you should be about the health of that company or you should more concerned you should be about the importance of that company. Is that, does that get to the concept? Exactly. If you think about the relationship between, say, particular sovereign debt, uh, Greek debt, for example, mm. and the various different institutions that hold Greek debt as part of their asset holdings, imagine if Greek debt defaults. That sends shockwaves to all of the various different financial institutions that happen to invest in that asset. So one way to capture that in some work that I've been doing with Bob Merton and other co-authors, we construct a network diagram, which looks like kind of a spider web, where connections between certain kinds of securities and investors will give you a sense of just what happens when a particular security fails. That spider web can easily turn into something that looks more like a ball of yarn, a much more densely specified graph when you've got deeper connections and crisis conditions. And what happened during the financial crisis, as well as during the European debt crisis, is that these connections allowed relatively small shocks to propagate much more quickly and develop into much, much larger financial crises. 
Okay, and arguably in the case of Europe, now that quite a lot of the big institutions have managed to dis- disengage from Greece to a large extent, that's why people are less uh, less worried than they were. A, a Greek disaster at this point would be less disastrous for the rest of Europe than it would have been in 2010. That's right. And imagine if we actually had access to these network diagrams in advance We could have managed these kinds of exposures much more deftly in order to be able to reduce the impact or maybe even avoid some of these kinds of global crises. Okay, so that gives us some idea of how this can model the crisis and how we might have have been able to foresee some of it. What, therefore, does that imply for regulation? We've had... Certainly, if you believe the verdict that markets have made so far, there seems to be quite a genuine belief that the Americans here in the US have done quite a good job of re-regulating after the crisis, or at least if you look at what people are prepared to pay for US securities, the market seems quite comfortable. They're rather less convinced about what's happened in Europe. What does this suggest we should be doing about regulation, and should we be comfortable with the state of re-regulation as we have it at the moment? Well, I think the adaptive markets hypothesis suggests that we want to take a different approach to regulation, and that is to recognize the human nature is a critical part, not only of the regulated, but also of the regulators. Mm. It's a very complex dynamic that actually has a relatively simple illustration in the swinging of a pendulum with regard to tight versus loose regulations. I think we all recognize that there are periods where regulation becomes relatively lax, uh, typically during market uh, booms and uh, bull markets. uh, When everything is going well, regulators may be a little bit less likely to rein in these various different financial institutions and activities. Of course, that's exactly when they ought to be reining in those activities, but it's very difficult because human nature tells us that if everything is going well, why bother trying to take the punch bowl away? Right. And similarly, when things are going badly, after a financial crisis, we tend to impose lots and lots of regulations, but that's probably the wrong time to be doing it. And so this kind of feast or famine, this uh, cycle of regulatory stringency uh, versus uh, uh, being more relaxed, that's also part of human nature. And unless we recognize that feature of our behavior, we're never going to be able to break free from those cycles. The hope is that with the adaptive markets hypothesis as the driving force behind some of these regulatory innovations, we might be able to begin to develop counter-cyclical regulatory policies to deal with these issues. There's a very famous book about uh, behavioral psychology called Nudge. I mean, how do you affect that kind of change? Do you have, uh, you need to be counter-cyclical written as a a big, in big letters coming up on a regulator's computer screen every 10 minutes or something to remind them? Or uh, how do you nudge things in the correct direction? Well, so I'm actually a big fan of that book. I I find it fascinating. But I want to remind the listeners that nudge is both a verb and a noun. Right. And although I think the author of that book was using it as a verb to be able to nudge individuals to making the right decision, very often as a noun, we tend to dismiss people who are nudges, simply because they really don't provide us with the kind of advice that we want to hear. I think that nudging is not enough. I think we have to redesign the very structure of regulation to develop these kinds of systematic counterbalancing effects in the same way that 
here in the United States, we have bicameral legislation, we have three branches of government, and we see that that's actually quite valuable to have this almost adversarial aspect of these types of organizations that can counterbalance some of our worst tendencies at the most trying times. That's what regulation is really supposed to be about. It's supposed mm-hmm. to prevent us from doing the things that we know we're going to want to do and that we should not do during these periods. We need to have more of a recognition of the origin of that kind of behavior and to design policies to be able to deal with it in a more effective way. Now, does that mean, sure, I agree, the U.S. Constitution must be the most most successful example of a system of checks and balances that has endured uh, you know, remarkably long time, over two centuries now. The key thing about the U.S. Constitution, it seems to me, as a, as a foreigner coming here, is that it's very much principles-based and written in very great generalizations so that it can have flexibility over time. If we take an example of Dodd-Frank, for example, well, obviously the most relevant example for the for the U.S. financial system at the moment, there are principles motivating it, but it's extremely tightly prescriptive. Does that imply that that's the wrong way to go, that it doesn't allow for the kind of adaptation and uh, evolution that you've been around a, a core set of principles that you're suggesting? Well, there's no doubt that that's part of it, but I think that there's a bigger difference that we have to keep in mm-hmm. mind. And the difference is that the U.S. Constitution's brilliance and genius is not so much that it was principles-based, but rather that underlying those principles is a deep recognition of and skepticism of human behavior. Right. We recognize that left to our own devices, we will end up doing things that could be counterproductive even to our own health and welfare. Mm. And so one way to do that is to create a system of checks and balances where we're constantly using the wisdom of crowds to help us make better decisions. And Dodd-Frank doesn't yet have that feature. It has a list of prescriptions, and some of them are very important and very productive, but it doesn't recognize that the ultimate origins of financial crises is human behavior, and we need to deal with that root issue before we can ever deal effectively with these crises. Okay, there's two more topics I'm hoping to uh, to cover. The book is runs to almost 600 pages, and I it's worth. Apologize for that. It's I don't think you should. It's worth reading. Uh, it's it is thoroughly enjoyable, which is quite an achievement. Two more points I'd like to cover. One is whether there is a way. Finance deservedly has a bad reputation at the moment. People are angry with financiers. Is there a way that finance, if we understand better the way that markets work, can become more of a force for good, for positivity? Well, absolutely. I think that's a very important point and one that I tried to make at the very end of the book to Mm. give some sense of what the future of finance is as well as the finance of the future. We haven't uh, been able to deal with these issues effectively because we don't recognize the fact that human nature does drive virtually every industry. And that means that we're going to get some very positive things from industry and some very negative things because of human nature. We all have within us the seeds of great things as well as terrible things. And so once you recognize that fact, the dual nature of human behavior, we can then begin to think about how to channel the forces to be able to make better use of these tools. For example, the idea of financial engineering has become quite a negative 
connotation over the course of the last couple of decades. But the fact is that financial engineering is responsible for some of the most important innovations in modern society. And in some recent work that my colleagues and I have been doing, we've been proposing to use financial engineering for dealing with some of society's biggest challenges, like cancer or fusion energy or climate change. Using the power of financial markets, we can actually get tremendous resources deployed to deal with these societal challenges. And I don't believe we can deal with those challenges in any other way. So finance can be a force of good as well as a force of greed. Now, let's just briefly discuss the uh, the curing of cancer uh, example, because it's obviously something we all of us care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've written about it and been encouraging this in a long way. As, as I understand it, the idea here is that you get the power of diversification so that you would create a fund that invests in maybe as many as 100 different attempts at finding different ways of uh, curing or ameliorating cancer. And if two or three or four of them work, the fact that 50 or 60 of them turn out not to lead anywhere needn't matter. There will still be a, a return. It's Get harnessing diversification to make it possible to uh, finance cancer research is that is that a fair summation of wh- where your idea is heading for for that for for cancer curing it is and in fact it's an idea that is not new to the industry mm. if you take a look at pharmaceutical companies they are portfolios of mm. multiple projects the problem is that the portfolios may not be big enough in order to deal with the challenges that face us today we may need to have a large mega fund to be able to contain all of the various different projects in order to reduce the risk enough that investors are able to get a decent rate of return and patients are able to get the drugs that they need. So being able to scale up the industry using these mega funds is an example of how financial engineering can actually help in ways that existing structures really don't allow. Is there a sense in which there's a perverse market incentive in that certainly the uh, a number of the bigger existing large pharma companies are trying to cut back on R&D or find ways not to spend so much on, on R&D because it's such a, a risky oper- operation. There's so much of a chance that you're going to invest billions and have nothing to, to show for it in financial terms. That's right. In fact, I think that pharmaceuticals have been unfairly maligned because they are doing exactly what shareholders, we investors, are telling them to do. We're telling them to make more money, reduce the risk, and be able to drive up their share prices. And so by cutting R&D, they are actually being able to do that because they're focusing on the less risky, more profitable parts of their business, which is late-stage drug development and marketing and drug delivery. What we really need to deal with is early-stage drug development. That's gotten a lot riskier because we've actually gotten quite a bit smarter about developing these drugs. And so all of the amazing designer drugs that are coming out That's creating an increased risk at the early stages that we can actually help reduce using financial engineering. Okay, and that's a way of dealing with an adaptive market failure, a a problem with the the markets at present. My final question, you've hinted already that uh, passive funds may now be becoming too central to markets, or the next crisis is going to involve passive funds one way or another. Where do you see the ecosystem moving next? Tell me who the herbivores will be and who the carnivores will be in another 10 or 20 years' time. I think that index funds are going to have to change the way they construct portfolios and match various kinds of portfolios to investors. 
gone are the days when you can put all of your money in one fund and forget about it and believe that when you retire, you'll have enough money to be able to do so in the style to which you would like to become accustomed. I think what we have to do now is to think much more carefully about different kinds of passive investing, different mm. betas, if you will, mm. and be able to put together portfolios in a much more sophisticated way. So the world of indexation is still very active and it's going to grow over time, but the kind of indexes that come about are going to have to become much more personalized. In the same way that we have precision medicine and personalized therapies, I think we need to have precision indexes and personalized portfolios. And we have the infrastructure today. We have the ability to do that. What we don't yet have is the algorithms, the software, the ability to model human behavior and to tailor a particular portfolio strategy to your specific needs, desires, and predilections. Once we do that, I think there'll be an incredible renaissance of indexation that will take us to the next generation, the future John Bogles and Vanguards. Mm. And I suppose the final question, algorithm is another one of those dirty words, uh, or has a bad name among many of the people who will be listening to this. How much can we reduce human intervention and how much can we leave to algorithms? We're, we're understanding the potentialities and the uh, the errors of our own brains better and better over time. How far can that go? Well, one of the key misunderstandings of artificial intelligence is that we're creating algorithms to replace human behavior and intervention. And I think the better way to think about it is that we're developing algorithms to leverage human behavior and intervention. What we want to be able to do is to allow humans to use their judgments in ways that are going to be most effective while at the same time automating the things that can be easily automated. And we're at the stage now where finance has a lot of automation, but we haven't yet figured out how to design strategies so that they can actually help manage portfolios to the tune that individuals need to have given their own individual circumstances. Right. We're close, but we're not there yet. And if we can do that, if we can develop algorithms that can actually allow us to manage our portfolios as if we were the ones calling the shots, but in a rational fashion, that would reduce a lot of the issues that investors face today. We're close, but we're not there yet. I think in another 10 or 15 years, we will actually be a lot closer. And at that point, we may achieve what John Maynard Keynes set out as a goal for all economists. That is, going to an economist should be like going to the dentist. Exactly. More pleasant, but you have the same basic trust in an economist that you have in a dentist. That's right. Well, this has not been anything at all like a visit to the dentist. I could happily carry on talking for a very long time, but I fear we need to let you and the listeners go. Adaptive Markets by Andrew Lowe is in a bookstore near you. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Alpha Chat.